Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up, we'll revisit a conversation from the fall, an extraordinary conversation with search and rescue worker Scott Hammond on his book, Lessons of the Lost, Finding Hope and Resilience in Work, Life, and Wilderness. An extraordinary conversation uh, coming up. Hope you'll stay tuned for that. First, a comment responding to yesterday's program. You'll recall we talked about genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. And here's a response from Randy Wirth, who, who uh, emailed us to upraxis at gmail.com. He says, thank you for hosting this discussion. The marketing hype that the world will starve without GMO food is bogus. The world is starving now, and it is not because there's not enough food. With greater reliance on industrialized monoculture, we're setting ourselves up for real disaster. Global warming is just one indicator. The decline in biodiversity on the planet is alarming. The proliferation of industrialized agriculture that relies on the manipulation of monoculture crops puts us at grave danger. Simply, we need to give customers choice and not impose GMO products on them because we have allowed industrialized agriculture and industrialized food production to eliminate all other choice in the marketplace. This is the industry that can best afford to label their products properly. Instead, we have to rely on certified organic products to carry the burden. Once again, I say, uh, because in the case of Roundup Ready Corn and other Monsanto products, the organic farmer is supposed to protect his crops from drift for Roundup Ready Farms or from Roundup Ready Farms. If his organic crop is contaminated, he not only loses his premium customers, but has to pay Monsanto for having it on his field. If anything, Monsanto should pay the organic farmer for the contamination. Now, we all have a movement. Uh, we have a movement to label products GMO-free. It's taking hold. Again, the alternatives to GMO products are having to uh, have an independent inspections over a site with labeling, when the cheapest alternative for the consumer would be to have producers of GMO products label it as such. That's from Randy Worth. Thank you, Randy, for that response. The con- conversation on GMOs can continue at upraxis.gmail.com and at our website, upr.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Scott Hammond, who is Clinical Professor of Management at Utah State University, Uintah Basin. And he's written a very interesting new book, Lessons of the Lost, Finding Hope, Resilience in Work, Life, and in the Wilderness. Scott Hammond, uh, in addition to his day, day, day job, uh, does search and rescue. So that's where the jumping off point comes, right? Volunteer search and rescue with Rocky Mountain Rescue Dogs. Yes. Uh, with your dog. Uh, tell us about your dog. Oh, Dusty the Wonder Dog. I yes. have to talk about him. Uh, but uh, Dusty is a golden retriever. He's five years old. He's got about uh, three years of field experience. And so we've been out on about 25 different missions. Uh, to look for lost people in the mountains and deserts of uh, Wyoming, Utah, uh, Nevada, and uh, Colorado. And uh, this is a jumping-off point. You use this as a metaphor for uh, being lost in life, and so we'll be talking about that as well. Being lost, being found, very interesting. How did you get into search and rescue? What was the impulse, do you think? Well, I've always been a mountain kind of a person, a hiker, and I had a dog that passed away. A golden retriever, and I thought, well, I'm just going to take a little bit of time and and train this dog, this new dog that we got, because I was very distraught over losing my hiking companion. Uh, so I got a new dog, and I'm going to take a little bit of time, maybe 20 hours, and train it to do search work. And I didn't realize it would take 800 hours of work and lots of work to get a dog ready to do search and rescue work. 
Um, but uh, and it's and dogs naturally come about this. It's very easy for a dog to learn how to find somebody. But it, what's harder is to get them to come back and find you afterwards and say, "I found this person," and lead you into them. Hmm. And you say in the book, I hadn't realized this. Uh, most search dogs, most searchers won't ever be the first uh, person on on the scene. Never have a live find. We have, yeah. uh, well, we sort of had a live find this summer. We found somebody just outside the parking lot. Uh, we were just going on a search up in the Mirror Lake area, and uh, we'd been out for about uh, 30 seconds and ran into them. But most search dogs, more than 95% of them, will never have a find. Hmm. Uh, but they they love it nonetheless. This is something that's challenging and, and good for them. Absolutely. They just love it. Uh, it you think it's work for us. Um, I love it as well, but the dogs just get so excited. It's a big game for them. And, uh, and the more complicated the problem, the more excited they can get. Hmm. Um, th- this I don't, Does it take a certain kind of person to become a search and rescue person? Do you, do you find with your fellow search and rescue crews you're all sort of the same personality type or, or – you know, it is interesting. It's a very diverse group of people. But one thing that I think we all have in common, and this may be in, true with all of us, all of us have been lost at some point in our lives. You mm-hmm. know, if maybe in the work or in the wilderness or in our lives, but we've been lost and we've had a sense of lostness. And I think that's one of the things that drives people to get involved in this work. Interesting. Uh, you're, you're right also that the people who have – you described the scene at the trailhead. Where you know you get the big crew of the the, the sheriff uh, organizes the search. Uh, you got the big crew of search and rescue people like yourself, the dogs and such, and then you have others, maybe friends and family or others who come and provide support. And and you say that if you have been lost, uh, a lot of people tend to to go and join those those groups. Yeah, a lot of the people who um, you meet in search and rescue work have then have themselves been a part of a. Uh, lost situation. One of the things that's just absolutely amazing, though, and hopeful to me is that when you have a lost situation, a few weeks ago or a few months ago in the in Utah, we had a fairly publicized uh, search up in um, Daggett County for a young man who was wandering around in the Uintas without socks. And it made all of the news stories. And uh, he was there for four days. You know, the first day we were there very early, about 20 people searching. The second day, 120 by the third or fourth day, there were three, four hundred people, volunteers, um, trained from all counties in Utah and up in Wyoming looking for this young man. It's very hopeful to realize that if you're lost, there are a lot of people who are going to look for you. Hmm. Now, sometimes, and probably you know, a lot more often than we would like, um, you, you go out looking for remains it's it's uh, the search has been discontinued uh, as the winter comes on and you go out in the spring what what's that kind of a search like these are more common than we'd like to admit mm-hmm. probably more than half the time the kind of searches we go on are never in the paper you know mm-hmm. they're that search where the they really know that the person wanted to get lost it might have been a suicide or they didn't want to be found and uh those are difficult kind of situations. But my very first search was one of those. And and it, it that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, uh, The Lessons of the Lost. The first one for me was that um, this woman who had lo- just lost her husband came up to me and she said, you know, he was lost a long time before he went missing. Hmm. And that just turned my whole perspective on the sense of lostness, that missing is what we're really looking for in the wilderness. But lost people are all around us. You quote Wendell Berry several times uh, uh-huh. in the book, and this very interesting idea 
this uh, taking, you know, the being lost in the wilderness to, you know, as a symbol so that if you if you don't know where home is, so to speak, um, you, you know, nowhere's home. Right. Yeah. And, and you are lost. There are really some kind of some people who don't want to be found. And there are some people who don't know that they're lost. And so in life and in work, we have to move people that are lost to, to being aware that they are lost because they have to usually help themselves. But if you don't know that you're lost, it's the Wendell Berry idea. If you don't know that you're lost or you don't want to admit that you're lost, then it's very hard to be found. And there have been several circumstances that we've had when we've been called out to actually look for somebody who'd been lost before. They'd been the subject of a wilderness search in one case three times. Because they came home the first time and they didn't get the support they needed. They didn't get the help they needed. And then so they went out again and again. And the third time, uh, they met their demise. Mm. And so, you know, it's just you come home, you have to be found. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that doesn't just mean coming home. It means being found. But I hadn't focused on that. Maybe these cases aren't so publicized. They're, you're saying there are people who um, – that's the way they they want to end their life. They just go out and they're expecting that they probably will die out there. Yeah, they're expecting to meet that, and they don't want to be found, mm-hmm. and and they don't make the news. But the sheriff's departments uh, spent a lot of resources and time uh, working towards finding these people anyway. So how do you how do you help such a person? How do you help such a person become found? You know, what I talk about, and the first thing is admit you're lost. If you really need help, admit that you're lost. Um, the second thing is, is, is get that help, accept that help, embrace that help. Mm. And there are just a lot of cases, whether it's lost in life or lost in the work or lost in the wilderness, where people are not willing to do that. And if they are willing to do that, then they can come home and be found. You write that uh, academic pressures – uh, sort of are pressures against helping students. You you need to block out times for research, publish or perish, yeah. that sort of thing. You took a different tack. I, I think you said it, uh, it cost you tenure at that time. Uh, yeah, I was at one university uh, that I think co- it cost me tenure because I was spending a lot of time with students. And it wasn't so much that I wasn't getting the publishing done. It's that uh, I was perceived as trying to be too popular. And, uh, and yet students are very fragile when they come, first come to a university and first break away from home. And this was before I was doing search and rescue work. And maybe, as you point out, it might just be the seeds of some of my early thoughts. But you see that, that fragile person. You see that they could be your own son or daughter. And you see that they really need help. And, uh, and so they need a place. We need a, maybe a place to go for Sunday dinner. Maybe they just need a long talk in the office. And if you're perceived as being too popular in a driven research kind of a university, sometimes that can be difficult. Now, I have to say, my daughter came to Utah State, and I've been here at Utah State uh, for a while, and that's a different culture here. Mm. It's a place where you can do both. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. Uh, you write about uh, – it's a very poignant story – a uh, young man who dropped out of your class. Oh, yes. Descended into alcoholism and, and worse. Yeah. I wonder if you tell his story. Well, this was a, a story I had, who uh, a story of one of my students. And uh, he started my class and was doing very well and uh, then just disappeared. I called him a couple of times, why aren't you in class? And, you know, I talked to his wife and I got this ambivalent kind of an answer. And then about three years later, he showed up in my class just like nothing had happened. 
what's going on here? Three years. You know, where have you been for three years? And he had gotten lost. But his lost wilderness was, um, first of all, alcohol and then heroin. He very quickly became a heroin addict after he started. He said he started drinking and within six months he was a, a heroin addict. And so it took him three years to get off of that or to get rehabilitated. Now, he still struggles with it. I'm still in touch with him and he still struggles with the temptation of it. But um, he had a situation where uh, his parents disowned him. His wife was wondering if she should leave and take the children. It was his work had fired him. And his in-laws came in and, and sat him down and did one of those intervention scenes mm-hmm. that you've seen on television. and. Um, and instead of saying, get out of here, go away, um, they said, look, we're going to help you, and we're going to help do whatever it takes to help you, mm. and we're going to get you in rehab, and if it doesn't work the first time, we'll take it the second and the third, but we want you to raise our grandchildren, and you can live in our basement, and, you, and we can beat this together. And it was just this, you know, this rescuer that came out of nowhere. So he wrote an incredible paper about – this gift that his in-laws had given him when his own parents had given up on him. Mm. And uh, uh, I guess throughout much of this, the point for him is he didn't know he was lost, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Addicts very rarely will come to that admission of being lost. That's why they say often in Alcoholics Anonymous that they have to bottom out. And that's that realization. That's when you get to that point of realization where you say, you know, this has really gotten me to the point where – I'm lost. Hmm. We take this back to the real wilderness, we, we might call it. You, this is something I hadn't realized either. A fair number of people um, don't want to be found. Uh, they, don't, they don't want to admit they were lost. Even if they obviously were lost, they're not going to admit it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are a fair number of cases of hunters and other people who are, you know, there's a big search out looking for them. Three days they're gone and uh, they barely walk it back into camp or get brought into camp. And they say, oh, no, I wasn't lost. I, I'd been wandering for a few days, but I wasn't lost. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for us sometimes to admit that we're lost. You tell a story and we, we all saw this in the newspaper, a tragic story, uh, a mother and daughter. Yes. Kim Beverly and, uh, and Carol Weatherton up in the Uena Mountains. Uh, I wonder if you'd talk about that. That's that the case. Trial Lake area, if you've ever been in the UN, is that. And they uh, went up to a, a lake. They took pictures of themselves in the warm before the storm. They had their jackets off, and they'd probably left most of their gear in the car. But those of us who've been in these mountains know that there is a warm before the storm in October, and, and it's just uh, a little bit of the lie that the mountains tell you. And in these pictures, you could see the storm coming at them behind them, you know, as it gets closer and closer. Uh, they go up, back up the trail. They're only three miles from the car. What could happen, you know? And uh, But on that trail, and I've been on that trail lots of times, there's a very subtle turn to the left and then a turn to the right that takes you back to the parking lot. And the turn to the left takes you really deeper into the woods. And when the snowstorm hit, they couldn't tell where the trail split and they took the wrong trail. Mm-hmm. The next year... Uh, they were their bodies were found, and there were apologies and notes of apology, and they had sort of gone off of the trail and almost hidden. It made me realize that so many lost people experience deep shame, and I'm not sure what they felt. We don't know what they felt, but we know that most lost people tell us that they are experiencing shame above fear, that they are just ashamed of being in the situation they're in. They feel incompetent, and they feel embarrassed that people have to look for them and save them. 
And that's true with people who are lost in work, in life, and the wilderness. Mm. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Scott Hammond. He and his golden retriever, Dusty, are volunteer search and rescue workers with Rocky Mountain Rescue Dogs. He has a new book out, Lessons of the Lost, Finding Hope and Resilience in Work, Life, and the Wilderness. Scott Hammond is clinical professor of management at Utah State University, Uinta Basin. More following break. Christopher O'Reilly here, and if you're a fan of the piano, then this week's From the Top is for you. We'll hear a 16-year-old perform one of Ravel's most beautiful solo piano works, and we'll enjoy a new piece for piano and voice by a composer who's just 13 years old. It's all piano on this week's From the Top. Tune in every Friday afternoon at 2, repeated Sunday evenings at 9. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business 30th Annual Information Technology Conference, Tuesday, February 25th at the USU Eccles Conference Center. Introducing Cyber Law Specialist David Thaw, Associate Professor at the University of Connecticut. Details at partners.usu.edu. We're uh, talking with Scott Hammond, if you've just joined us. He's a cl- clinical professor of management at Utah State University, Yona Basin campus. And his book is Lessons of the Lost, Finding Hope and Resilience in Work, Life, and the Wilderness. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you tell her story early in the book and you come back to it. In fact, uh, a quote from her ends the book, Vic- Victoria Grover. Yes. Tell me a bit about her story. Uh, Victoria Grover uh, went on that uh, BYU survival course back in the 70s, where they used to drop you in the middle of the desert and teach you survival skills. And she did that for six weeks. And it was a life-changing experience for her. It was for a lot of people of that generation. And then when she, last year, I guess it was a year ago, year and a half ago in April, she came out to a wedding, the wedding of her sons. And she was very stressed at the time and decided to go down to the Escalante and not really reenact that. She was going to stay in the bed and breakfast at night, but go on day hikes to try to recapture some of that feeling and to to get her head together, as she put it. As she told the innkeeper where she was going to be, where she was going to be hike and when she should be back, and went out the first night and just got too far in to come back safely. Built a fire, did survival skills, knew what she was doing, and on day two she was coming down the um, – a draw into a little uh, river just on her way back to the trail, knew exactly where she was going to be and try to get back in time before the searchers came out. And um, she broke her leg on just a very simple little drop. She was invisible. She was in a hole where you couldn't see her, where the searchers couldn't see her. She was 40 yards from water. Uh, She couldn't figure out a way with an almost compound fracture to get out of this hole. And and, and all of this fear is overwhelming her. And she just does something amazing. She, sa- she says she goes into this meditative state, and she'd been envisioning herself trying to climb out of this. And she said, turn around, turn around. She just kept hearing that, turn around. So she turns around, and she finds it with her one good leg and her bottom, she can sort of scoot her way up this rock and over the rock and down and along on her way to the 
to the river. As she's going along to the river, she drags her poncho behind her and starts throwing wood and anything that will burn on the poncho, dragging it along. She gets to the river, gets her drink, her much-needed water, and then she has fuel and starts a fire, buries the ashes in the sand, and sits on the ashes as it gets down to 30 degrees that night. That saved her for four nights. Wow. And now, unfortunately, they didn't report that she was missing. And so it wasn't until the third day that they started a search and they found her on the fourth day. And she probably wouldn't have lasted till the fifth day. But it was that kind of different thinking that, gee, I, I've got a way. I can turn around. I can do this in a different way. And then that creative, okay, we got to build a fire and bury the ashes. It was, the, it was a, that kind of different thinking. It wasn't the techniques. It was that different thinking that saved her. And that's true with most lost people, that they usually have a point where they're They've got a problem that's absolutely unique that they've never encountered before, and they find a solution that's absolutely unique that they've never tried before. And uh, so one of the lessons here, you've got to be open to that yes. unique solution to the unique problem. Yeah. Another of the, the lessons from that story that stood out to me, I think sometimes we're reticent to report somebody lost because we don't want to bother the searching, you know, cause all the bother, the expense. You know, they're probably okay, but uh, I guess your advice would be uh, – Report them lost. Call early. Yeah. Call early. That makes all the difference in the world. With dogs, it makes a tremendous difference because mm-hmm. a dog can track you, and uh, but your track after 24 hours gets pretty weak, and after two days is very difficult to do. But if you can get a dog there within 24 hours, you can usually track somebody to where they are mm-hmm. and do it quickly. The interest, the most interesting thing apart about the story of Victoria Grover to me, and this is one of the big points in your book, is the aftermath. I could have, you know, I could imagine myself, thankfully, I haven't gone through that. Uh, you'd be rescued. You'd think, phew, sigh of relief. Boy, back to my life. But she, she dealt with a lot of emotional issues after being rescued. Yeah, and everybody does who, who's genuinely lost. You're never not an alcoholic if you've been lost in alcoholism. You're never not mentally ill if you've been lost in mental illness. You've, um, if you've ever been really fired and terminated, you never let go of that in your career. And that's certainly true in the wilderness, that you don't come home the same person to the same place. And Victoria dealt with that in some difficult ways. We call it post-traumatic stress syndrome sometimes, or things like that. We have names for it. But it's really, you came home and the world had changed. Your priorities had changed. With her, she had lived um, at the, she had a $2 poncho that saved her life. And, and so money had a whole different meaning for her because that $2 poncho that was the best purchase she'd ever made is very valuable. She says she still carries it with her. And, uh, and the money doesn't mean as much anymore. The status doesn't mean as much anymore. Uh, and how did she work through some of the, the emotional things that she was feeling? You know, one of the things that she did is that I thought was great. She's a, a, a healthcare professional, a physician's assistant. And she said she was going to rededicate herself to serving others, that she found that it's in the service of helping others getting found that that she found joy in her life. And so she rededicated herself not to the business of medicine, but to the care of patients. Hmm. Including helping with search and rescue. Uh, yes, she's done some of that um, in, in Maine. She's up in Maine, and she's done some of that. Yeah, it, it's an amazing story. Um, and one of the other reasons is – you know, try to be prepared. You know, you maybe take a class that that could that could help. Yeah, but take a pack too. Yeah, the yeah. Boy Scouts have something called Ten Essentials, and Victoria followed that. She had matches with her. She had that two dollar poncho, 
and those saved her life. They literally saved her life. Uh, the Boy Scouts have a list of 10 things that you're supposed to take in every pack. And I won't go 100 yards out of my car without those 10 things. Mm-hmm. Even though you think, hey, I'm just going down to the lake, I'm just going a short ways, you may need those things. I think the, one of the other things uh, here with, with, with the case of uh, Victoria Grover and, and some other stories that you tell in the book, you talk about how the, the thing that gets the press, the word that gets the press is survival. Yes. A lot of television shows and, and, and uh, you know, you, you learn techniques for survival. You say it's not really about survival. Of course, you need to survive, but it's about being found. Yeah, I, I think this is a real important point because the, when you're in survival mode, we call it sometimes, it's a really high cost place to be. It's standing at the edge of the cliff, but not going over the cliff. So you're just trying to hang on and trying to, to get to that next moment. And what I'm trying to tell people is you got to get out of survival mode and into thriving as quickly as you can. Uh, that's particularly true if you think of somebody who's unemployed and they're going, I just need a job. I just need a job. Well, job, that small thinking doesn't motivate people to just get a job. But if you think about a career and a life and a thing that you really, really want, that motivates you then to find that job and do well at that job and turn it into a career. And so you have to have that big dream, that sense of the ideal future. Everybody I interviewed who's been lost in the wilderness said at some point they could see themselves in the future, and that was motivating, see themselves in the ideal future, and that's what motivated them through a difficult time of their lost experience. Even one of the 12-year-old boys that we interviewed talked about seeing themselves with their mo- his mother and his dad getting an Eagle Scout award, you know, and you're going... Uh, yeah, he could see that, and he's there feel, wanting to feel self-pity, and he's thinking like that. That saved him. Hmm. You, uh, at one point in the book, you have uh, this very interesting scene that stuck in my head of a group of unemployed men. Yes. A, there's a bookstore, I think. Yes. And they just go and hang out there. Yes. What do you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, I was at a, I was trying to write the last chapter of the book, and I went into the bookstore to sort of hide away from where I – to get some writing done. And there was – I noticed from about 10 in the morning till 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a unique group of people there. And they were mostly middle-aged men. And they had – they had first come in with a stack of books that said how to write a resume, how to do a job interview kind of a thing. They weren't buying the books. They we were just using the books at the bookstore, the latest. And then they'd sort of sit down and talk one-on-one to somebody else. And pretty soon you started hearing stories that they'd been laid off, that they had been victimized by unemployment, that they were feeling irrelevant in their life. And if you listened, uh, you could just hear this deep lostness in most of them, that they had been laid off, that, they, that this job that had become so precious to them was no longer there. And then they'd lost their dignity, and then they'd lost their families in some cases, and their identity, and they were trying to get it back. And it was a deep and profound way of being lost. Um, for many of them, I think they're still there because they couldn't rethink themselves. But I had a student at Utah State that just really inspired me a few weeks ago. He came into class excited to tell me that uh, he hadn't been able to find a job now for almost a year. He's graduating soon. His father had just gotten laid off. And I thought, where's the happy ending here, you know? And what they, it, he'd also been a part-time worker at a local automotive shop. And um, he and his father are now buying the shop. Oh, interesting. 
and yeah. his father who had been a corporate person for his whole life and got laid off, and he who couldn't find a job are now entrepreneurs mm. and doing something together. And they learned to think differently about that situation. Mm. And I think if they had stayed doing the same thing, uh, new problem but same solution, they would not be where they are today. But they are very happy to have this chance to work together. This the scene in the bookstore. You know, there's there's a quiet little drama played out. The bookstore manager wants to get rid of them. Yeah, cuts off power <laughs> of the outlets. He, you know, asks them if they want to order every twenty minutes. He he can't get rid of them. And you say that that perhaps the reason they're not, some of them are not getting new employment, is what they're carrying around and what they. I guess the, what exudes from them, which I guess is is that bitterness and the that fear, that yeah. fear. It's yeah. that fear, and it's it's a toxic brick. And when they go into job interviews, and I've seen them in job interviews uh, as a professor of management, I've just seen a lot of this where somebody comes into a job interview, they look great on paper, they've got all this experience, they've got all of these things that they want to do, and they come into that job interview, and you just get this sense that there's something wrong with this person. The thing that I tell people in that case is the worst thing you can do, yeah, the first two or three days after being unemployed, tell your story. Tell the story of victim. Tell, tell the story of how badly they told you and how badly they treated you. But you've got to let go of that very quickly. If you keep telling that story and living in that story, you will be so negative that it comes across in an interview. It comes across even in a letter. And, and no matter how qualified you are, they don't want you in an organization if you have that kind of negativity. The other emotion you can understand that uh, any person in that situation feels fear. Fear. But yeah. fear can kill you. Um, but, but how do you... How do you move past that? How do you, yeah. how do you get I, I to think that the hardest state? thing, and I actually think it's harder for men than it is for women. I don't have any data on this. But I think women usually find um, identities outside of work, even if they're working career professional women. They find identities and things outside of work that give meaning in their life. But most men, their identity, their core identity is their work. What do you do to contribute to society? And so when you lose that, and particularly when you lose it in your 50s and you're looking for a job and they're just they don't want to hire an uh, an older person it, it's very devastating and so how do you lose that well i had one fellow tell me this story i thought it was wonderful he came in uh, he he just got tired of being around people saying what are you doing today what are you doing today and he got tired of sending out resumes 8 months into this so he decided to go down to what we would call a homeless shelter and just work he wanted to work he, he knew he wouldn't get paid, but he just wanted to work. So he went down and he said, put me to work. Three days into that adventure, he was unloading groceries from a car that had donated some groceries, got talking with the owner of the car. The guy said, well, what do you do? And he described how he had used to be an accountant. That guy said, well, I need an accountant. Steps into a job that is just absolutely ideal, more pay, more salary, better salary, better job than he had before, career job, that he got while working at the homeless shelter. You know, so sometimes you just have to find something positive to do, stay active, movement creates opportunity, and then let the job come to you. You don't find it standing in line very often. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's not what a lot of the books tell you. You know, there's a there's list that you check off. Yeah. But, uh, but you're telling us that you may work on yourself. Yeah, check on the list. Yeah. Check off the things that are on the list. Do all of those things. Write the good resume. Write the good letter. Do the interview techniques. But then work on yourself, work internally, because being lost is first a mental, spiritual, emotional problem. And uh, it doesn't – it's not just all about geography or human the human condition. 
You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour today, is Scott Hammond. He and his golden retriever Dusty are volunteer search and rescue workers with Rocky Mountain Rescue Dogs. He has a new book out, Lessons of the Lost Finding Hope and Resilience in Work, Life, and the Wilderness. Scott Hammond is clinical professor of management at Utah State University, Uinta Basin. More following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Offering 100% whole grain raisin, oatmeal, date, and millet breads. And USU's Partners in Business 30th Annual Information Technology Conference, Tuesday, February 25th at the USU Eccles Conference Center. Presenting keynote speaker, systems and security architect, Branson Matheson. Details at partners.usu.edu. Hey, did you hear your car talk last week? Our Fred Gladys went to her car and got in the back seat. (laughs) (laughs) And actually sat there for about a minute or so to look around to make sure no one was watching. (laughs) And then stealthily removed herself. Don't miss the fun this week. Join us for Car Talk. Tune in Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. If you just tuned in, you are listening to Access Utah, and we're talking with Scott Hammond, who is clinical professor of management at Utah State University, Uinta Basin. His book is Lessons of the Lost, Finding Hope and Resilience in Work, Life, and the Wilderness. And uh, Professor Hammond is, um, he, he does a search and rescue. He's with the Rocky Mountain Rescue Dogs with Dusty the Wonder Dog. Yes. Uh, Golden Retriever. Golden Retriever. And also a, a member of National Search and Rescue Association. Yes. Uh, by the way, what, uh, how large a group is it usually in, a, in, a, in any given area that's in part of this, you know, that they're first on the scene uh, when somebody's lost? Yeah, um, in uh, across the United States, all counties do search work. So cities usually don't. Counties run the search and rescue. Cache County has an outstanding search and rescue group. And they're almost all volunteers. They're almost all trained volunteers. Then there are groups like ours that are dogs only, and we go around and support those groups, particularly the groups that don't have their own dog teams. And so in our case, we end up doing uh, support for a lot of rural sheriffs who don't have a large set of resources that they can uh, deploy. And so we will get called out. We did a search a few weeks ago in Rich County, and we were pretty much the only group up there doing the search. So, And some counties hit the news a lot, unfortunately. Summit County, I, I get the impression sometimes that sheriff does nothing but. Yes. You know, it's... it's uh, people, they are one people. of the busiest SAR teams, in the, and they are very well-equipped and a very good team. Yeah. But there are certain areas that people love. And they, they go out and, and maybe don't realize the dangers. And Yeah. But there are high-traffic areas like Summit County. They have a lot of incidents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, uh, and you said um, that even though most dogs won't have a find, they love it. They love it. It's a good life for them. They are just driven by it. Yeah. And so my dog will get up in the morning and come up to the door. And, and then if I say, let's go to work, he's just – he starts running around in a circle chasing his tail and jumping up on you. He's very excited. Yeah. And then when he has a find in training, 
um, he will come back. And that's the only time he can jump on me. And the way he tells me that he's found somebody is he comes up and jumps on my chest mm. and then has that big nod and that mm. big golden retriever smile. Mm. And then it's, follow me, follow me. I found him. I found him. And uh, so it's just amazing to watch him work that way. What kinds of breeds are involved? Uh, golden retrievers. I'm biased to golden retrievers, mm. but there are some who use German shepherds. Um, and uh, then there are a lot of pound hounds that work well, but they have to be big dogs uh, because they have to be able to withstand the rigors of the wilderness. And they have to have big noses because that's what they use to collect the scent. And so smaller dogs usually don't work in wilderness search. Smaller dogs can work well in rubble searches. Uh, so FEMA uses some of the smaller breeds for rubble searches in earthquakes. But in wilderness searches, you usually need a larger dog. I imagine a lot of training. Uh, yeah, it takes about 800 hours, really. But it, most of that training is for the master, okay. the handler. You know, uh, I think the dogs can do this just naturally. It's part of their wolf instinct. Uh, dogs, their nose is about 400 times better than ours. And so when I'm driving down the road and I go by Burger King and I go, oh, gee, they just put a – I can smell something coming out of that building – the dog can say, well, let's see, somebody just ordered a double Whopper with cheese and fries. I mean, that's how good their nose is. They use almost exclusively their nose. They don't even use their eyes very much. So most dogs won't recognize their master unless they can smell them. They don't even know my face. Mm. You know, my dog doesn't know my face. He knows my smell. That's how he recognizes me. And they can then, through their instincts, follow that scent to the, its source. And it doesn't take very much. It can just take a hair a, a small amount, and they can smell that and know where it is and follow to it. Part of the instinct that drives them to find somebody who's lost is that pack instinct where they want to bring the family back together. And particularly golden retrievers, I think, are good at this. They just want to make sure that the pack is intact, the family is intact. And when you tell them somebody's missing, they want to find that person and bring them back. Mm. That leads me to an a interesting quote let me find it here. This is uh, from William Syrotuck. Is that how you yes. pronounce his name? Uh, he's done some research on lost person behavior. This is his quote. Uh, the, your, your reference to uh, dogs and social animals made me think of this quote. We're social animals, too. Uh, he, says, uh, he says, people are social animals surrounded by a complex artificial environment. In the technology of today, few people are self-sufficient. Very interesting, and it's true, isn't it? That yeah. we we're just are, and so what do we do? We rely on our network, our social networks, to find us. Dogs have that same thing, and they are even part of our networks. But they have their own network, their own pack mentality. But we're that same way, so we need that network to find us, and uh, that's true in life and work in the wilderness. You need that social network sometimes to to catch you when you fall. Do you think we're losing in some way in today's world as those communities that we used to have? Well, I am finding more and more that it's uh, that as people go out in the woods, they don't understand the dangers. And that's because they haven't learned from the previous generations, from their parents, the way you learn how to be in the woods, that there are fewer and fewer people who really understand the natural environment. And that, I think, is a problem. Hmm. I guess that usually was passed down. Yes. Father to son or whatever, whatever it would be. You'd go hunting. You'd go um, uh out with the family and you go camping together. And there's so much less of that now that when somebody goes out solo, they just don't understand the environment they're getting involved in. And that it can be wonderful and warm and cool and, and really nice. And then it can turn on you very quickly and become winter and become cold and become difficult and mm -hmm. life-threatening. You talk about the tipping point of the survival zone. 
Maybe tell me a little bit about that. Well, there are times when, uh, and this this also goes to when help is needed, kind of a thing. There are times when we can self rescue when we are in a situation where we can handle it ourselves if we think right. Um, but there's a tipping point where we absolutely need others to to get us out of that situation. We can survive maybe for a while, but we're our goal is to wait until someone comes and gets us. And that's true, again, in work, life, in the wilderness. It's, um, there are times when you just really need to reach out to that person. I, in my life, have had some mentors uh, in my academic career, I, in my um, personal life, that have just rescued me uh, when I was dark, when I was just things weren't working out for me. And I had a situation when I was young in college age, and it was just a mess. My parents had moved overseas. My job wasn't working out. I wasn't doing well in school. And I had an old neighbor from an old neighborhood come in and look at me, and I just I wasn't expecting him to show up at all. And he showed up, and he said, Scott, how's it going? And I said, great. You know, I mean, hey, I was a college freshman. What do you say? Everything's great, you know. And he said, no, it's not. And I cried. I just knew that he knew. And he said, well, why don't you come live with our family for a while? And I was with his family for six months. But it saved me. You know, it really saved me. And that's that tipping point where maybe we're not willing to admit that we are lost, but we need that other person to come in and step in and provide us that stability and that safety net. We need our networks. We are social animals, as you say. You have an interesting passage where you talk about your 10th, 20th, and 30th year reunions. Yes. It's something we can all <laughs> resonates with all of us. <laughs> and just went to the 40th. <laughs> oh, did you really? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell me briefly about each of those yeah, reunions. It's, you know, that first 10-year uh, reunion, you're all excited because you've got uh, uh, to show everybody how important you are. And you've got your new car, and maybe you've just married, and you have kids on the way, and everything's just perfect in your life. And then you get to that uh, 20-year reunion, and uh, there's some people who aren't there. Um, some of them, in our case, my case, had passed away. You know, Some had been killed by drunk drivers. A dear friend had been killed by a drunk driver. Um, another had died of AIDS. And you, know, you start realizing life is be- – and then there are others who, who are there, and they're – they don't have their children or their children are being raised by someone else. Um, And there's been a divorce and there's been that kind of difficulty. And then by the 30-year reunion, you're getting pretty honest about how life is and how difficult it is and how we've all been lost. I think everyone's been lost. I mean, if you've been to junior high in the United States, you've been lost. But, But we've all been lost in our life and in our careers. And what's happening now in the 30- and 40-year reunion are these great stories. Just came back from the 40-year reunion. These great stories of people who said, you know, I got lost. I got off track here. I was an alcoholic for a while. But now I'm back, and I figured it out. And, you know, one dear friend who lost his son in a tragic drug overdose, and and he's back, and he's okay now. And he's got friends around him now, and it's going to be okay. It's The pain's still there, but he's found so that's a big part of it, realizing that being lost is a natural condition, admitting it. Yeah. Yeah, we've all been lost. Yeah. Uh, you bring up the searcher's dilemma, you call it. Yes. And uh, we've talked about this earlier. I wonder if we could loop back to this. Uh, we're getting near the end of the conversation. This person doesn't know he's lost or doesn't want to be found. Yeah, and, and then there's also the dilemma of uh, how long do you search? How much? Mm, how right. much of your resource do you give to that 
search. And county sheriffs have to make that really tough decision of how long do we go for this person? Hmm. What are the probabilities that they're still alive? How long do I put somebody at risk? And at some point, they have to call it off and call the family and say, we're not going to look anymore. And that's a real tough dilemma. And we do that in life, too, where you're saying, you know, we've been working with this. Maybe it's a wayward child. We've been working with it. We're trying. We've been working. It's taken all of the family resources. And now we need to go focus on our other children. And we can't draw down those resources anymore. Yeah, that, that's a, that is such a dilemma. It, it is it's a hard, hard thing if you've ever gone through that. I wonder if you tell us about your daughter, Becky. Yes, Becky. Oh, she's my hero. Um, this She's just a wonderful young woman. She's uh, 27 now, the mother of three children. And, uh, and when she was uh, about 14, uh, we had been dealing with some issues that we for a couple of years, some behavioral issues. We knew things weren't right. And when she was about 14, she was diagnosed with major depression. Um, we worked with her and worked with her. And my goodness, you know, our kids, Becky, everybody would agree that she got about 70 percent of the parenting and the other kids got about uh, divided up 30 percent. Uh, it was a very difficult time for her. She didn't graduate from high school, um, but she's very bright and very, very bright. But she just couldn't get, you know, it was either A or F. She just couldn't discipline or focus herself. Uh, we had trips to the emergency room, panic attacks. Finally, when she's a, a freshman, and uh, we are just struggling with all of that, uh, she came home one day in April after her freshman year, hadn't passed most of her classes. Um, and uh, didn't have a job and was sleeping till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And she said, Dad, nothing in my life, nothing is working. And so we um, said, let's start over. You know, we did uh, a, a prayer, which is our spiritual tradition, together, and then we said, let's start over. And we found a new doctor and pretended that <laughs> nothing had happened, uh, no history here, and started to look for ways to work through this difficult situation. To make a long story short, the doctor diagnosed her as being bipolar, and a lot of the, the things that we'd done around depression had made it worse with medication. He diagnosed her as being hypoglycemic, which also causes problems. Once we got her on the right medications, within two weeks, she had a job, a job she loved. Within two months, she had a good relationship with a friend. Within six months, she was engaged to this young man. Um, within a year, they, you know, I'm sitting there saying, you're too young to get married. And she's saying, no, this is the right thing. And now they're married and very happy. She still manages her disease, but she knows what she's dealing with. And she was lost for seven years. And she'll admit that and tell you about it. And she's talked to my students before about it, about how you have to just be so proactive and courageous and take on this dragon by yourself. Hmm. Um, and then you have others around you, but you have to be responsible for it yourself. This is a part of the story that stands out to me. It sounds like your family found a unique solution to a unique problem. That's a theme that you're seeming to advocate. Yeah, and, and uh, you feel blessed that you found that solution, but you also feel a little bit concerned that if it ever happened again, would you be able to do it again? Mm. Uh, finally, I wonder, you, you wrote that in you joined Search and Rescue, you're involved in searches, does something for you. In fact, you write that you found yourself in those searches. Yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't know so much that I was lost, but I don't think I was fulfilled in my career. 
Uh, we very all of us in lots of different careers do things, and then we get into a habit, uh, a rut, we might call it. And though I love teaching and I'm passionate about teaching, I just didn't I didn't get some of the promotions I wanted or the opportunities I wanted, and so I wanted to find myself. I didn't think it would be search and rescue work. But when I started to talk and meet some of these survivors and they gifted me, gifted me with these stories that I wrote in the book, it changed me. It changed who I am and what I want to do with the rest of my life. You also say that you found your voice. You can see that evident in in your book. And more important to you is your personal voice, not your professional voice. Yes. I've written academic articles for years, but this is a personal book. It's about my personal change, but it's also about their personal change, these these people who've been found and, and are willing to share the most intimate time of their life, the most difficult time of their life on with me on these pages is just – is very hopeful for me that people are willing to be that reflective. And I believe you're inviting people to tell their story. Yes. You can go to www.lessonsofthelost.com. Yes. If they'll come to the Lessons of the Lost website, they'll read the story of others and they can also contribute their own. We've mm. all been lost. Yeah. Well, the book is Lessons of the Lost, Finding Hope and Resilience in Work, Life, and the Wilderness. Scott Hammond has been my guest. He's clinical professor of management at Utah State University, Uinta Basin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. 70-year-old Utah State University retiree Ned Weinschenker, a member of the USU Handball Club, came to the StoryCorps booth to share his lifelong love for the game of handball, which began when he was growing up in the Midwood neighborhood of Brooklyn. I did grow up in Brooklyn, and it was there that about the age of maybe nine or ten, I started learning about handball. It turns out in New York there are handball courts everywhere. In, in the park that I played at, we had, I believe there were five handball courts, literally around the corner from where I lived. On Saturdays and Sundays, what they called court number one was reserved for the men. At this particular park, on a nice day in the spring or summer, there could be a hundred people standing around this court watching a game. They were betting on it. They were betting on whatever else was going on in the world at that time. Some of them actually brought beach chairs and was sitting around the court. So I'd watch those games and watch these these good players and see how they played and absorbed it and started to understand about it. And then I'd either go with friends that I knew or I'd just go over and whoever was there, we'd start playing a game. And that was good because most other sports I didn't do well in. I was a fat kid, and a lot of my local friends played basketball. And for some reason, I had zero coordination to be able to do a layup. But for handball, it was just natural. I just went out and started playing. And the body motions that you have to perform to hit the ball properly just felt right to me. By the time I got to high school... I was doing pretty well. There was a high school team, and we played all the way up to city championships. And I probably won 90% of the games that I played. I was fat all the way through high school. And actually, in, in some ways, it may have been a real benefit because my opponents, if they didn't know me, probably thought I couldn't move that fast. They'd hit a shot and think, he's not going to get it, so they wouldn't move. And then I'd get it, and they'd be standing there. <laughs> and I just smiled and went back to the game. <laughs> 
handball really was my passion. And one of the things I liked is it's not a lot of equipment. It's basically your body. You're not using a bat. You're not using a racket. I got to the point where I wasn't even wearing gloves, so I could just go out anywhere and play handball. It gave me a huge sense of confidence. Even with the weight that I was carrying, I, I, I excelled at a game, uh, excelled at something physical. I can close my eyes and visualize myself on the court and some of the people I played with. One in particular, he and I were probably the closest friends, and we are still friends today. He suggested last year that as four of us reached the age of 70, that we ought to have a reunion in Brooklyn. And we went back and we walked the old neighborhoods and we went to the handball courts. Here it was a beautiful Saturday. There was nobody playing. The courts were empty. There were leaves on the, on the courts and nobody was playing. But the four of us got on the court and we were playing handball again. And then a few other younger kids came along. So I went over and said, hey, how about a game of doubles? I partnered with the youngest kid, and we beat the other two teenagers. And my friends were just amazed <laughs> that I was still able to get on the court and move like that. But I really got into it with these younger kids. In and out of my life, I thought about handball, and I just look back at it with incredibly fond memories. It just is something I love to do. And when you make a good shot, it just feels wonderful. Ned has recently taken up indoor four-wall handball at USU with a group of fellow retirees. He continues to enjoy the social and physical benefits of the game. The USU Handball Club is participating in the U.S. Handball Association's National Collegiate Championships next week in Raleigh, North Carolina. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.